0: Downtown Productions in cooperation
1: with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
2: Greetings, Don- downtownians, downtownies, downtowners. <laughs> Good to have you along for Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 239. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell with you. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, on the podcast this week, two fine conversations. Actor, producer, director, writer Eric Jensen will join us and talk about his Broadway debut in the play "The Collaboration." Up first, though, well, one of the most uh, revered political figures in Maine history. Started as the mayor of Bangor, went on to serve in the House of Representatives, the United States Senate, and as the Secretary of Defense under President Bill Clinton. Talking, of course, about William S. Cohen. The Bangor native who always sheds, uh, well, a learned eye on the state of the world. And we had a chance to talk with Secretary Cohen recently to get his thoughts on uh, the state of the nation and a pathway forward. Here's Bill Cohen on downtown. Well, thanks for uh, checking in with us. How are you?
1: Uh, actually quite good. Uh, everything is. Uh, it has been good so far, as we say, but uh, uh, things are improving, I think now that the elections are finally over for uh, for this year.
2: Well, I I want to go back in time uh, 50 years because uh, I was reading uh, in Downey's magazine the wonderful excerpt uh, of the new book that's out, uh, Bill Cohen's 1972 campaign for Congress and oral history, edited by your friend Christian Potholm. And it was a simpler time 50 years ago when a, when a young man from Bangor, Maine could set out on foot and uh, make that be not just an effective campaign tool, but an incredibly successful way to learn about the area that you would be representing.
1: Yeah, it was. And uh, frankly, I had no uh, intention of going back uh, that far in my life. Uh, but I got a call uh, from the publisher, who happens to be Jed Lyons, who was a Bowdoin student and one of uh, Chris Potholm's students uh, at Bowdoin. And so when I finally decided to uh, to run for office, I had uh, really no staff, no uh, no help, and I called uh, Chris Potholm, who was a classmate of mine and a dear friend, and I said, I need your help. And so he uh, <laughs> reluctantly, I think, he, said he didn't know what he was getting into either, Uh, But he uh, got a few Bowdoin students, and Jed Lyons happened to be one of them, who's now become publisher of one of the uh, the great publishing, um, mid-level publishing companies in the country. And they said, let's go back and try to recapture what it was like then. And, And I was thinking recently about the movie Three Days of the Condor. Oh, yes. Which was based actually on a book, a novel, Six Days of the Condor but there's a wonderful uh, line in the uh, in the film in which a the young intelligence officer turns to an older member of the OSS which is the predecessor to the uh, CIA and the younger man says do you miss the good old days uh, and the uh, OSS uh, officer former OSS officer Said uh, uh, no, but I do miss the clarity of it all. <laughs> and it sort of sums up how I, I look back uh, now and see what's taking place today, and it was it was so much simpler, so much uh, clearer. Uh, I think in terms of the parties, uh, the issues involved, the fact that we didn't have social media, which can be helpful and harmful uh, at the same time, and and so. I I, I think it was a better time for political discourse, uh, that there was less cruelty, crudity, um, hate language, uh, and hate action uh, in those days. And I think that we have evolved or devolved, I guess would be a better way of saying it, uh, to a place where it's harder for uh, people to run – for office and do so in a way that responds to our uh, the angels of, uh, you know, our our nature, the best angels um, and that quality of which uh, we're we're looking at public servants as being fiduciaries and that's kind of a legal phraseology but a fiduciary has a higher standard of conduct than an ordinary citizen because you're asking for the public to trust you And in order to uh, deserve that trust, you have to set a a higher standard of conduct and of speech. And I think um, we have seen that uh, degrade over time. And I was lucky enough to serve at a time when you had people like Ed Muskie, who was uh, uh, our senator and then uh, became a presidential candidate for a period of time. But uh, one of the most respected men in the country. And. Uh, of course, Margaret Chase Smith, and then you had George Mitchell, Olympia Snow, and and now Susan. Uh, but going back in those times, I think that people felt better uh, about the government. Um, you know, we live in a in a democracy, we always kind of have a level of discontent because you want things to get better for more people. And when that doesn't happen, there's a level of discontent. But you look around and say, this is still the best country, the greatest country in the world. If you look at our system and you look what we've been able to achieve uh, during a short life, historically speaking, Mm. a very short life. So um, I hope that we can learn from the excesses of what we see today, where people feel they have to um, base their candidacy or their conduct on the lowest common denominator in terms of uh, getting more visibility in the media, becoming more celebrity hoods, uh, uh, celebrity celebrities period in their own uh, right. So uh, I hope that we'll learn from the excesses of today and evolve toward a uh, almost kind of return uh, to some of the standards
2: of the past. And I think back to those, those years uh, in your first term uh, as a member of the house judiciary committee, uh, standing up to what was going on with President Richard Nixon, uh, people in the Senate like Howard Baker, and there were no shortage of elected officials who put country before party, and, and it seems like we don't see as much of that anymore.
1: Uh, I, I, no, we don't, and that's the uh, the problem today where um, the parties, whether drifting to the right or to the left, are making it in, uh, a litmus test that uh, you can show no independence and so you have members on the republican side for the most part being in lockstep with former president trump and as a result of that we saw last night even that uh, uh senator warnock uh, was able to win again uh in uh, in in georgia uh, a, a reportedly red state now evolving to a purple state and maybe even a blue state but um i I think for the most part, the election was conducted at a higher level, notwithstanding the social media uh, coverage of it. But I think Herschel Walker, whom I admired greatly as a football player, but felt he was uh really not qualified to be a United States senator, not for me to say people of georgia obviously to say, but um when you look at the uh the quality of the people who are coming in in terms of what they are running on. When you get a Dr. Oz, let's say in Pennsylvania or a Mastriano, uh, and you see what they're saying, election denying, uh, undermining support for the the political process which we have, which is very damaging not only to us as a country but to the perception of us, which is really important because – other nations look at what is happening here, as we try to hold up that uh, you know the Statue of Liberty, uh, the flame, saying this is this is how great you can become if you allow people to be free, and uh, tap into their um, creative. Um, uh, aspects of their of their uh, souls and uh, to be innovative, et cetera. Uh, being free gives you great opportunity. And when you're suppressed or when you're uh, under the oppression of a single leader with an autocratic ruler or dictatorial ruler, then people uh, are not allowed to be as good or great as they can be. So we've always been that symbol. Uh, and I think that symbol had uh, deteriorated somewhat. The flame was not quite as bright when they saw what happened on January sixth with people storming the Capitol, roaming through the Capitol, uh, uh, really despoiling uh, the yeah. United States Capitol at that time, uh, that had a big impact on our allies, saying, if that can happen in America, why should we allow, in our own countries, what you're doing, to give that much freedom to people and to see it turned against you, It had a major impact in terms of people admiring us. And when people start admiring you, they stop following your lead. And, you know, we have been a leader of the free world. And we want to continue to lead the free world. What we think in terms of the arc of history bending towards justice, towards freedom, toward individual creativity and opportunity, you know, we have to think about ourselves, obviously. Um, uh, in terms of how do we get by day-to-day, how do people pay their bills, what we do about inflation. Um, but when we see our own system being undermined from within, and that is the greatest threat we face right now, certainly on a physical, violent level, the security systems, Homeland Security, FBI, and others have indicated that homegrown extremism is the greatest threat we face today.
2: We're talking with Secretary William Cohen here on downtown. How did we get here? And obviously there are a lot of reasons for us reaching this point in our politics and our nation. But I'm curious about a couple areas. How much of a role do the campaign finance laws play, which I think lead people to play to the extremes? And then the nominating process within each party that tends to be either more liberal or more conservative than the electorate.
1: Well, uh, a number of factors. You can point to money, uh, which is the root of all evil, as Veil wants to say. But money has become uh, fundamental uh, to the political process in a way that I think is dangerous. Uh, I grew very disenchanted during my years as I started out um, 50 years ago. Uh, And I thought it was pretty expensive then, uh, that it was hard to raise enough money within a state to run a campaign, given the costs of television at that stage. Um, But it's grown so exponentially that um, members of uh, the Congress, certainly members of the Senate, uh, they uh, work through Thursday evening and then get on a plane. And they take the weekend, some with their families, but most of them on the money run and they are on a plane going to various cities around the uh, the country to raise money to fund their next campaign so they leave on Thursday night they're gone Friday Saturday Sunday come back Monday and then try to legislate Tuesday Wednesday and half of Thursday and it just becomes exhausting uh it also requires you to be ho- beholden to so many different interest groups um that um it does i think it it makes it almost impossible for people to be doing their jobs while focusing on how much money they're they're bringing in uh, on the um, the revenue raising and i i wonder too issue.
2: when when you had members of congress spending the weekend in washington and not coming home to to do that money run as you put it did that also give them more of a chance to socialize and get to know each other as people so while you might disagree on issues you don't disrespect them as individuals.
1: Uh, That is also part of it, Rich, as well, uh, that we've seen parties treat each other as enemies, where in the good old days, uh, you know, we had a rule in the Senate, by way of example, that we never went into another uh, senator's state to campaign for their opponent. Mm. That's just fundamental, uh, you know, human relations 101. Uh, The Senate uh, is, you know, you have a six-year term. You have to work uh, and work a a consensus. So you have to build friendships on both sides of the the aisle, so to speak. And if you go into a state and campaign for an opponent of uh, the current senator, He's not going to be as eager to work with you uh, when you get back into session. It was just a fundamental rule never do that. The only one who ever breached it was Teddy Kennedy for me. <laughs>
0: and,
1: and he would come in and just do a light campaign uh, for uh, whoever the Democratic candidate was. And we used to joke. Because he was a good friend, and I said, Teddy, every time you come to, come into my state, my ratings go up. Uh, <laughs> and we'd have a big laugh about that. But he was the only one. It was very. It was not, you know, really pushing the issue. He did it as a favor of the Democratic Party. But it was never on an attack against me or any Republican. It was always for the benefit of the Democratic Party. But there was, that was just kind of an unwritten rule that we had uh, at that time. It was just again, how do you get along and make friends? And, and we had a rule that uh, even in the house, saying, "Look, the house is much more partisan, it has been historically than the Senate." In the House, uh, the shortest uh, the shortest distance between uh, two points is a congressional term. Uh, <laughs> in the House is designed to keep you very close to the people you represent. The Senate used to be designed to say, well, in the Senate, you get a little, more, a little more leeway. You can be a statesman for four years, and then you can be you know, a politician for two and get back and, and, and campaign on the issues. But at least that six-year period gave you some uh, break in terms of having to come home every weekend. And I know that um, I did that almost uh, when I was in the House. I was home, I think, 48 out of 52 weekends. Uh, And um, that takes a toll because my family, I had moved down here with the hopes that I could spend more time with them. But then I had to go uh, back uh, to the state and and do all the campaigning when I was in the House. The Senate gave me a little more leeway that I could miss one or two weekends and uh, stay uh, in Washington, have what you mentioned before, be able to socialize uh, with Republicans and Democrats. Uh, You know, I I made it a point to... um, uh, George Mitchell and I uh, wrote a book together. Uh, we had different points of view and different votes, but we were able to write a book together about the Iran-Contra.
2: And you wrote uh, together with Gary Hart.
1: I wrote a novel with Gary Hart, and it came about accidentally. I didn't know him well, but there was a three-day filibuster taking place, and I think it was, gosh, back in 1980, as I recall. And I was on the Senate floor at 3 o'clock in the morning, there was no one else on the floor but uh, Gary Hart. I didn't know him uh, particularly well. And everybody else was on uh, sleeping cots outside the chambers. <laughs> they had set up uh, cots for people to sleep on so they could be called in to, for a vote if one was going to take place. In any event, I spotted uh, Senator Hart, and I said, I am bone tired. Why don't we go down to the Senate dining room and get some coffee? And so... Uh, we did. We were the only two in the in the Senate dining room, and we had a big pot of coffee, and we started to pour it. And I said to Gary, I said, what would you – this is crazy what we're doing. Why are we in these three-night, all-night, all uh, all-day uh, all sessions and night sessions, and there's no vote? We're just here. And I said, what would you rather be doing if you weren't in the Senate right now? And he said, I'd rather be in Ireland writing a novel. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm half Irish. I've always wanted to write a novel, so why don't we just do one together? And believe it or not, we sat there and we were joking as we were pouring coffee uh, during that time. And he had a, uh, an envelope, and he said, well, what will we write about? Well, we write about what we know. In other words, we, we weren't about to uh, uh, start the uh, you know Gone with the Wind type of novel, but what do we know? I had just come back from a, a conference on terrorism in Germany because a banker named Schleier had been assassinated. By a right wing uh, group. And so they had a conference in um, in um, Berlin. Uh, and I went to that conference and I came back. I said, Well, I've learned something about what they're doing in Germany, what uh, the threat is. So why don't we put that as one of our key issues? And he said, Well, I served on the church committee uh, investigating the assassination of John Kennedy. We've got to put that in too. So we made a list of things in about a 40 minute period. And wrote a little uh, outline in terms of how those issues uh, would uh, be involved in the story, and I went home that morning to take a shower. So uh, came back and I, uh, I still had the outline in my hand. I called an agent in New York who had represented me on a couple of prior books, uh, and on uh, nonfiction poetry, actually. And I said, you've always wanted me to write a novel. I have a friend. I won't tell you who it is, but I have an idea and a friend of mine. Uh, Would I think we uh, could write a pretty good novel. And he said, well, when do you want to see me? I said, today. <laughs> and so he came down that day. I introduced him to Yuri Hart. And I said, here's the story. And he said, it's a terrific story. He said, I, I like it a lot. Uh, and I said, one condition, you can't tell any publisher who we are. <laughs> he said, well, that's a killer. I said they're not going to uh they're not going to read or publish anything above from people they don't know and I said no we it has to be done on the merits the story has to sell itself and uh so he said I can't sell this uh, novel he went back next day at 8:24 or 5 in the morning he called me said I just sold your novel and we signed a contract as Mr. X and Y wow and the publisher didn't know who we were until uh, we actually submitted the novel <laughs> um, and uh, and that and it became a pretty big seller. Yeah. Uh, but those were the days when something like that was possible. And it's very hard today uh, to get that kind of collaboration because number one, the thing you pointed out, we're traveling all the time. We're traveling to raise money. We're traveling back home to see our families if they're back home. But uh, it's becoming you know a twenty-four and seven um, job. And that's one issue. The second issue is gerrymandering. What's happening today, because the districts are being drawn by both parties when they can, they're being drawn in a way that solidifies their opportunity to have a majority in that district. And so what you're seeing is Republicans uh, can get elected if they go further to the right than the incumbent. And so it's a race to the right. Democrats are doing the same on the left. So as a result of that, you have people planting their you know, flagpoles in the end zones. And I've always talked about politics in the United States as being fought between the 40-yard lines of a football field. Mm. Uh, this country is, I think, slightly right of center. As Historically, I think we're there. Yeah, or slightly left of center. Um, but when you move away from those 40-yard lines back t- toward your end zone, uh, you get stagnation, paralysis and what happens as a result of that and you can look to see what's going to be happen in the next 2 years unlikely to see much progress on any big issues simply because you have a house now with one party a Senate with the other and the elements within each party pulling to the right and to the left what happens under those circumstances is that it gives the executive the president more power because no one wants to see stagnation. People need to get paychecks. They need to have government stay open, etc. So the person who has the power to do that in extreme circumstances is the president of the United States. So it's almost a transfer of power uh, to the president uh, and making a stronger uh, executive as opposed to a weaker one, which the constitutional founders uh, wanted to see and uh that power divided to make sure that you didn't have such a strong executive that you had something akin, you know, to the royal power in the in the, in England. So it uh, you know, we have a, there's a lot of re- there are a lot of reasons why we are polarized and I could go on at length at least to identify one in which I think that we have failed to take into account as we rush to take advantage of globalization and that we really forgot about the people whose jobs were being lost. And so as a result of that, if you look around the country, you say, well, wait a minute. Those jobs that were good for American corporations to take advantage of, let's say, Chinese low-cost labor or no regulation of labor, uh, so that we could uh, invest in the big market over there and get cheaper goods so that people could buy goods at a lower price here. But it cost uh, a lot of jobs uh, in the industrial sector of this country. And I don't think we, and I put myself in that category as well, we didn't think far enough ahead to say what is the cost going to be uh, to uh, to our industrial base here to the people who use their hands and manual labor and uh, the manufacturing process which is still in the the position of, um, of the process of evolving and we took advantage of um, uh, low-cost uh, and low-wage countries and so we're paying a price for that now because people in the midwest the former industrial states uh, mostly white middle class not uh, part of you know, the uh, the college or Uh, higher education um, um, population, they're saying, hey, you forgot about us. And I think that's part of it. There's anger. Mm.
2: Is that Uh, what fuels that frustration and and what seems like in some quarters the willing embrace of authoritarianism as long as as that authoritarian figure will provide you with some measure of protection?
1: Exactly right. And and that's where, again, I think we have failed to take into account what we were doing short-term great Uh, we were you know we did we did we did a lot of good things for a lot of people uh, throughout the world and uh, it's important to uh, for our companies to be able to say uh, we're helping to raise the wages and the living standards of people in other countries because it's an opportunity for us to sell goods to emerging markets If you look at where the population growth is, well, it is in China. It was in China, although long-term, it's diminishing. Uh, India, Uh, 1.3 to 4 billion people, big market. Africa is going to be one of the really exploding populations uh, in the world. So is it important to help them uh, modernize so they can become consumers? Of American products, the answer is yes. So we we've done we've helped people all across the globe to come out of poverty, massive poverty. But at the same time, we have to make sure that you know our first obligation is right here, and we have to make sure that we provide a a, a basic uh, source of uh, income for all Americans. And I think we we failed in that regard, and we're paying the uh, the wages of those sins. Um, but is there a way to get that back? I think there is. For example, President Biden has talked about reshoring. What does that mean? It means taking all of those industries that we exported, that we built uh, the supply lines in other countries, bring them home to the extent that we can do that uh, feasibly. So we're going to start building chip factories here. We're going to start manufacturing goods that we need right here. Uh, And so as we do that, we're going to lift the income levels of uh, the American people and protect our national security, because we have become over-reliant upon those supply lines, which we see have been choked off because of COVID and other external matters, or uh, in Ukraine and, and other matters that are taking place. So we have, you know, globalization served a very good purpose, but it also exposed the vulnerability uh, that the more distant your supply lines are, the greater the fragility of those fri- uh, the supply lines, uh, and any interruption, you can see the consequence. For example, I w- I lost my my freezer, my refrigerator. I ordered it eleven months ago, and it hasn't come yet. And they say, well, supply line problems, <laughs> and so. That's where we, we uh, have to start focusing. Talk about rare earth minerals. Ninety percent, ninety-two percent are in China. Uh, we have them here, uh, and, uh, but we've uh, said it's easier and dirtier. If, uh, mining is not a, you know, a clean uh, industry, so it produces uh, a lot of uh, complications. Um, can we do it here? The answer is yes, but we have very stringent um, environmental standards. That we want to insist that we comply with because we have you know global warming, so it gets very complicated, but I think the standard now is it started under President Trump. We give him credit for that, saying, "I want America first, and america first uh it you know unfortunately, it was a slogan back during prior to World War two right. Uh, which uh, produced uh, you know, some real divisions in this country, but putting uh, the American people first doesn't mean you put us alone. So what what Joe Biden did, and he's a you know an Atlanticist, an internationalist, and saying we need allies, we need allies, and you, it's like you need friends. You can't no man is an island unto himself, no man or woman, same for no state and no country. You need to have friends throughout the world. And it's best to nurture those relationships and not allow them to become, uh, you know, fragmented or broken, or accuse uh, other countries of uh, of uh, insidious acts against you. So when President Trump was railing against the Europeans and NATO being obsolete. Uh, a lot of us said, wait a minute, we need NATO. We need uh, friends. We need uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, region to be friendly to us because you have the, the greatest populations in trade taking place in the Indo-Pacific region. Anyway, I think what uh, President Biden is doing, and I would hope if the Republicans take over uh the next uh, election, that the next Republican president if, would um, not adopt the notion that we don't need allies. Uh, Jim Mattis, General Mattis, uh, I I have a conflict of interest here because he's part (laughs) of my firm. But uh, General Mattis, one of the reasons he resigned, and as I like to say, Marines don't resign. There is nothing they won't challenge. And for him, a four-star general, uh, whom I I knew when I was at the Pentagon and I uh, nurtured that friendship for many, many years, uh, no Marine ever quits, and yet he quit the administration because he felt... That his worldview was inconsistent with that of President Trump because he felt that we needed to hold on to these allies. We needed to bring people closer to us. And he felt that that was being undermined, particularly as it pertains to the Middle East and pertains to Syria. When the former president said, let's pull out of Syria, and he meant immediately. And Jim Mattis said, Well can't we do this over a period of time? So we've got allies. You can't just walk away. We've got allies who have soldiers on the ground who are fighting and dying over there with us. And so it became an issue for him saying, I can't I can't do this. I can't carry out your orders, Mr. President, because it's inconsistent with my fundamental values here. So my hope is that we um we rebuild the industrial capacity uh, and there's going to be more informational-based capacity, because that's the age in which we live in. But we rebuild it here and strengthen it at the same time, keep those relationships very close to us, because we're going to need them going forward. China is a competitor. Uh, India will be competing at various levels with us, although they're a strategic partner uh, as such, as a you know, the largest democracy in the world. Uh, so we need to nurture that relationship. Uh, we need to nurture all of those uh, in South Korea, in Japan, in Singapore, in all of the Asia Pacific countries, uh, so-called ASEAN countries. So we need to to build that, and of course we've got our neighbors, Canada and Mexico. Um, so you have to do both, and my hope is that uh, that this this um, boil. Will be lanced in the very near future, and I think Joe Biden said, you know, he's uh, he wants to bring America back, and he said he declared this, America is back, and that really resonated with our allies, and the only hesitancy they had, they said, for how long are you back? How long are you will you carry out this policy which we embrace because that has been your policy since the end of World War II and you know I, I think we made a good start on it uh, i think we got some real challenges coming up militarily to be sure uh russia is going to remain a problem for us uh, for the uh long term it's not going away china's not going away uh and uh, so we have to figure out ways in which we can actually find areas of cooperation with china uh i um uh, i have been associated with a group uh, That's organized to try to find two or three areas that we can say we can agree on, uh, because we're going to disagree a lot with China and should, uh, in terms of military uh, relations, because they are becoming a military. They are a military power regionally, and their goal is to become a military power globally. So we're going to have a challenge there militarily on Taiwan, South China Sea, etc. So we've got to be able to uh, deal with them on those issues. At the same time, say, are we both concerned about food security? Are we concerned about water security? Because what's happening is we are draining the water supplies, the global water supplies. And so we're going to have about a 40% shortage. By within the next 10 years, the world will be um, 40% short of the water needs that we need. And we're seeing this taking place here, Colorado River, other parts of the West drying up. We're seeing it in the Middle East, seeing it certainly in China and India. So, you know, uh, are there areas that we can cooperate, food security, water security, energy security, and most importantly, perhaps, is pandemic security. Look at what's taking place in China today with their, their zero-tolerance uh, policy. Um and so it's resulting in massive unrest. Uh, and so there's a way uh, you know, they, they could have used something called Pfizer or Moderna or any of the other uh, drugs that uh, have been widely successful and chose not to. Um, so is there an area going forward because we're always going to have these issues. There are always a threat of some new virus developing, uh, modifying itself. So those are areas that we could uh, cooperate on, and say let's let's try let's try uh, perhaps look reviewing what we can take off in the way of uh, tariffs on agricultural goods because who got hurt? We imposed tariffs on um, on agriculture and our farmers got hurt. We had to supply billions of uh, of uh, dollars to help keep them uh, going. So China needs our food. Our farmers need to sell their product, uh, and there should be an area we could say, uh, "Let's find a way to agree on that issue." And we've seen what happened when, uh, when the Russians were threatening to prevent Ukraine from uh, exporting any of its grain. Uh, who was getting hit by that? The African nations uh, who are impoverished. So. Uh, The world's a pretty small place, and um, we're seeing uh, more and more countries occupy a bigger role on the world stage, and we just have to really work hard at diplomacy, backed up by a strong uh, military capability, backed up by some consensus here at home. Because if we don't develop a consensus of saying, okay, I can disagree with a democratic uh, philosophy or act or programs, but uh, maybe I can modify it in a way that makes sense to me. And the same is true of the Democrats, not seeing Republicans as simply concerned about making money and uh, restricting rights, but saying maybe Republicans have a good idea about fiscal responsibility. So we have to, to, to try to find a way that we can develop a working majority uh, that builds this consensus because other countries are looking at the fault lines. They look at our racial divide here in this country, as has always been there, racial, ethnic, uh, religious, economic, and they are looking to exploit those divisions because the easiest thing for the, the Russians or anybody else to do is to simply send bots over here which are malicious, mm. which are capable of interrupting our, uh, our infrastructure and the flow of data, et cetera. How do we exploit the racial divisions in the United States? And so we have to come to a resolution saying, look, we're going to work to reduce those tensions. We're going to work on these issues to say that we are the United States. Uh, it's always been a dream. It's never been quite the reality. But that's been the dream of this country is that we are the most uh, – one of the most diverse in the world, and we use that diversity as a strength. Um, and we have seen that all of the innovation, creativity that comes when people are free to express themselves, their art, uh, their science, their economic brilliance, et cetera. Anyway, <laughs> I'll take you a long time to go through this with you, Rich, but uh, I have the opportunity in these uh, – advancing years uh, look back um, at um, at where we have been as a country and I think where we need to go.
2: well I, I appreciate it. I always love to get your insight and and uh, well you give me hope that we can find a, a pathway back to collaboration and, and getting uh, getting back to the future I guess we'd say
1: Well you know Maine has been uh, fortunate. You've got Susan Collins uh, in the Senate. You've got Angus uh, King in the Senate. Uh, you've got uh, Jared Golden, uh, a personal friend of, of mine, whom I admire, uh, and, and and others. So, uh, you know, I, I think Maine has always been, you know, Dirigo, I lead. Maine uh, loves the, the, the I lead part, and I think we have been able to do that with, I mentioned Margaret Chase Smith, Ed Muskie, um Uh, George Mitchell, Olympia, uh, Snow and Jock. I mean, you go through the list and uh, we've done pretty well for a small state.
2: Absolutely. And and you're a big part of that, too. It's wonderful to have the chance to talk with you again. Uh, Bill, I wish you and your family very happy holidays and uh, hope we all have a better New Year. And thank you, as always, for making some time for us
1: rich anytime and thanks for asking me i really appreciate it
2: well i could listen to bill cohen uh, talk about where we are as a country anytime he's got such a great perspective on things uh with his experience sure but with his i think very balanced way of looking at the world uh, great to talk with former senator and defense secretary bill cohen here on downtown. We'll take a quick break for a word from Cross Insurance. When we return, actor Eric Jensen talks about his Broadway debut here on downtown.
1: Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We're proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and was welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Like to take a seaman fix,
2: be your standings and my friends are just for show. See them as they really are. Back on downtown, our next guest makes his Broadway debut the in the play The Collaboration, based on the collaboration of artists Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat. We're talking about Eric Jensen, you know him from The Walking Dead, Mr. Robot, He even played Thurman Munson in the Bronx is burning. We had a terrific conversation about his Broadway debut coming just a few months after a pretty serious medical issue. Eric Jensen here on downtown. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me here. Man, so uh, excited for this show. It sounds like a a wonderful play, a great cast with you, uh, Paul Bettany, Jeremy Pope, and and you play a very interesting character, uh, the art dealer, Bruno Bischofberger, who was instrumental in bringing together Andy Warhol, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about about the play and, and what audiences will get to see?
0: Great. Well, uh, the collaboration is about the famed collaboration between uh, Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat. Andy Warhol, who was of uh, of one generation in the pop movement, and Jean-Michel Basquiat, who was in another generation of what's called the neo-expressionist movement, Um, both roads sort of met through Bruno Bischoff-Berger, who is one of the most prominent art dealers of the 20th century. Uh, he is fortunately uh, still with us. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, the, the, it was, a, it was a, a bit of, between Warhol and Basquiat, it was a bit of a rivalry. It was a bit of a, a competition. It was a bit of them learning from each other. Um, uh, they were kind of suspicious of each other at first, but finally came around. And uh, at the end of the day, the collaboration is really a love
2: story. Uh, This is part of uh, what Anthony McCartan calls his worship trilogy, looking at her fascination with religion, art and money. Uh, What have you learned about that fascination and, and what drives us to look at art in that certain way?
0: Well, I don't know. You know, lately I've been thinking a lot about AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence created art. And um, I've pretty much decided that you can't have art without uh, the human component that goes behind it, the suffering, the doubt, the uh, the fixations, the, uh, the good habits, the bad habits, the uh, wild discoveries. Um, you know, collaborating is hard. I, I collaborate with my wife. We write and make films together. And um, and when you're collaborating with a machine, it's, it's uh, one of you has a soul and the other doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you know, a collaboration is kind of a holy act, and um, it brings out uh, uh, sometimes the worst in us, but ultimately at the end of the day, I really believe that the act of collaboration brings out the best in us. Nobody can do anything alone in this world.
2: Uh, you have done so much. Uh, you have certainly worked off-Broadway and uh, television and film, but uh, this is your Broadway debut. Uh, not official yet. Though. You're in previews right now. The opening is coming up on the 20th of December. But but what has that experience been like for you so far?
0: Well, it's been super interesting. I mean, in February, I had a, uh, what's called a subarachnoid hemorrhage in my brain. Uh, I almost died. Um, and, uh, uh we were doing a play with a Steve Earle called Coal Country and I was at home and my wife was directing tech and she got the call from our assistant that I was in an ambulance on my way to, uh, to Bellevue, uh, to get an MRI. Um and uh you know the subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, this phenomena takes out about fifty percent of people immediately, and then of the fifty percent who survive, eighty percent have permanent cognitive and or or physical uh, disabilities that they have to uh overcome. and uh for me i I got very, very lucky. I dodged all the bullets uh, within about three weeks after having the uh, having the aneurysm it was okay. And, you know, almost dying makes you reorder your priorities uh, from A to Z. And I was fortunate enough to be in London to see a uh, uh, woman named Amelia Clark, who was in Game of Thrones. Mm. Uh, I saw her in The Seagull on stage, and Amelia is, uh, has written about having had two aneurysms during Game of Thrones. Right, right. And I saw her beautiful, amazing performance on stage, and I said, you know what, if she could do it, I could do it. And uh, she was a big inspiration to me, so I came back to New York and uh, asked my agents if they might not consider putting me up for some larger, more challenging stuff. And the first thing that came along was this
2: play. Did you have any uh, concerns, worries? I'm sure about uh, the mechanics of acting, learning lines, things of that sort.
0: Uh, Maybe for like a half a second, but (laughs) you know, if I've been doing this since I was 12 years old, and um, you know, at least in community theater and stuff, and so those. Those, um, those muscles don't go away easily. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I'm having a great time. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, acting with, uh, you know, Paul Bettany, which makes me Avenger adjacent, and Jeremy Pope, <laughs> which I think makes me multi-award winner Jeremy Pope uh, adjacent, and Krista Rodriguez, also who stars in the show. And it's a, it's a good forehander. We're the four musketeers. We're, we're not the Avengers, but we call ourselves the reliable.
2: We're talking with Eric Jensen here on downtown. You mentioned your collaborations with your wife, Jessica Blank, and and some really interesting projects. Uh, Well, what you call documentary theater. Can you explain uh, what that's about?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, what we do with documentary theater, we've done several plays in this style as we travel around the country or around the world and uh, pick a subset of people to interview, and we take those interviews, turn them into transcripts, and then spend time workshopping the transcripts with actors to find the play that is contained inside. Uh, the first play that we did that we're most known for is a play called The Exonerated, which, um, which uh, premiered uh, over 23 years ago, I think. And uh, ran off-Broadway for a couple of years and had uh, people like uh, uh, Mike Farrell was involved in it. Um, he's
2: Great a friend of our baby. show.
0: Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. He was on our board initially, and then um, he uh, helped us give a command performance for the governors of Illinois as uh, George Ryan was trying to figure out whether or not to have the death penalty in a state or not. And after seeing the exonerated he he really didn't look back I and mean, he said that in his book. I'm not saying that, but he said that in his book about making the big decision um and so we've done that with other things. We traveled around the world and interviewed Iraqi refugees in jordan uh during the uh during the uh the war um we uh we uh, traveled to Appalachia um to a small area in West Virginia and interviewed survivors of a uh, coal mine disaster there that took the lives of 29 men uh we believe it was an avoidable uh incident and uh, Steve Earle the uh the all country singer uh did our um did all the music for the play for us and you know released an album of that stuff um uh, people can hear that on Audible if they want to look up uh, a play called Coal Country. It's on Audible, so people can take a listen to it. But we find great joy in 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 finding these stories and talking to people in an open and honest way, and it makes it very easy for audiences to step into their mm-hmm. shoes. Uh, and some people call it social justice work. I don't call it that. I think it's just human work and it's the, the art of listening, something we need to get better at doing, uh, uh, all of us right now.
2: Well, no question about that. I, I, I want to see all of them if given the opportunity. I'm especially drawn to how to be a rock critic. Uh, I would love to see you play Lester Mangs.
0: Uh, How to Be a Rock Critic was we approached the Lester Bang's estate and asked if we could have access to everything that he wrote because <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to make a play about it, and it turned into a 90-minute one-man person one man show that I starred in, one-person show, and my wife directed me in it, and it is the most exhausting and brutal and wonderful experience I've ever had inhabiting Lester's words. It was all based on his writing. And uh, right now uh, we've uh, we've attached a wonderful actor to the movie that we're making based on the play and um and uh we hope to be off the ground with that sometime in the next uh the next year or so it's a it's a small movie with a big budget for music
2: uh, you've done a lot of terrific television work as well uh, being in a cultural phenomenon like the walking dead as dr stephen edwards uh, how does that change your your life when you are instantly recognizable to so many people uh to a show that has so many fans worldwide
0: well, you know, I was in season five, and I got what I got, is, is, I think if I'd been in more than like three or four episodes, I think what I would have gotten is a lot of the attention that a lot of my friends on the show get constantly. Um, I got a lot of things like, did I go to school with you? Do we live <laughs> in the same neighborhood. Do we shop at the same store? And no, no, no. Well, how do I know you? Well, I'm on TV sometimes, and they'll say, they'll say uh, oh, are you on this show? No, are you on that show? I was like, I was on The Walking Dead. Oh, I don't watch that.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: too scary for me too scary for me but you know i'm a big horror fan and a big fan of the show and a big fan of um of what they've done over the past decade with the show so um it certainly brings you a kind of attention that you never expected to get
2: uh, you're also in several episodes of, of mr robot and what a great ense- ensemble that was to work with
0: yeah i mean that was that that was stylistically, it's the difference. There's doing Walking Dead and Mr. Robot. It's the difference between doing Samuel Beckett and doing like uh, uh a very strict Shakespeare play. Um, Mr. Robot, that stylistically and and culturally, it was just such a significant achievement, and I was really excited when Rame. Uh, uh, was doing the Queen movie um, uh, uh, and uh, and uh, got his nomination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm I'm uh, really grateful to uh, to all of the people who were involved in
2: that. I'm surrounded by Yankee fans here in the studio, so I have to mention your wonderful work as Thurman Munson in the Bronx is burning.
0: <laughs> yeah, I. Gotta tell you, I've only played three real people in my life Bruno Bischoff Berger here in the collaboration, uh, Lester Bangs in How to Be a Rock Critic. And my favorite role of all time was Thurman Munson, uh, number 15 captain of the Yankees, who died tragically. Uh, uh in a plane crash uh, but there was so much more to him than that um I gained 26 pounds for the role much to the complaint of my knees and um and I got to I got to hang out with real New York Yankees I got to catch behind daryl Strawberry for a charity game which was the thrill of a lifetime and um and I just felt very lucky to play this guy and I I I after I gained the weight I was a fitting image for him and the second I walked out of my trailer in the in the pinstripes, uh, a teamster pulled me aside and he said, "Don't screw this up."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that was my vote of confident confidence from the teamsters, and and uh, by by all other people's accounts, I I didn't screw it up. So uh, so I can walk away with that feather in my cap. Yeah, it's been a weird it's been a weird life, man. I started off as a as a Uh, a cartoonist for High Times Magazine and then the acting stuff took off and all of a sudden I was doing TV movies on Hallmark and then I met my wife and we were writing and directing movies together and it's it's just been an endless surprise and broadway was not on the bucket list but after i had my aneurysm uh that changed you know and i have a wonderful daughter too who's now joining the family business she's going to start uh, start doing some acting now at age 13 and uh i i gotta warn you all she's better than i am so here she comes
2: <laughs> well eight shows a week what's the what's the biggest challenge of that and what's the most rewarding aspect of doing that
0: I think the biggest challenge of doing multiple shows per week is to try and uh, keep your edge and not repeat yourself. I mean, you, there, you know, it's sort of like being in a jazz quartet and you have your, you have your good days and your, your not so good days when you're in a, when you're in a jazz quartet, but you, you know, getting the basic message across without it looking stale to people is, is, is uh, quite a challenge. And on those days, I rely on a lot, of, a lot on technique and on the days that we're, that we're really inspired and it's just going great guns and we can do no wrong. Uh, those are the days that I live for. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, right now, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, a lot of uh, uh, young audiences, a lot of new audiences coming to the play. Um, and uh the fact that they 're learning about Warhol and learning about Basquiat through this incredibly an incredibly dynamic piece of work is 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 pretty thrilling to me. I always knew about these guys. I had an uncle who was a painter he used to take me to the Walker Museum in minneapolis and and uh and uh so you know these guys were a part of my life from when I was very, very young interview magazine was like i had copies of that and i had you know um i had a, a real strong connection to Warhol and basquiat and it's really a, a an honor to be a, a small part of their story
2: well we didn't have live theater for the most part for a couple of years it's so great to have it back and and as an actor to, to get that immediate field ba- feedback to feel that audience with you when you're on stage that that, that has to be like nothing else
0: it's like nothing else. You know, I was, in a, I was in a jam band for a while. I'm sorry to all those people who hate the Grateful Dead. We did a lot of Grateful Dead covers, and, and we jammed. We jammed out. And, you know, this is the first play that I've been in that's got uh, elements of that in it. You're really riding the wave of the audience. They're the other character in the play every night. They're the unpredictable element. Um, and we can be reliable in what we do, but, you know, they bring a certain sense of unpredictability and joy to what we're doing. And, boy, do people need theater. People really need art right now. And if there's any message that the play, this play about two artists has hot, is that uh, we really need art. We need artists. We need each other. And, um, and we are a reflection of each other. And, um, you know, on a good day, uh, we manifest that. And I'm, I'm really proud to be able to be doing that.
2: The Collaboration, playing now, opening officially December 20th at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater on Broadway. Eric Jensen, uh, so great to talk with you. Thanks for making time with us this afternoon and uh, break legs. Thanks for having me. That's Eric Jensen with us on Downtown. Again, the Collaboration, playing at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater in New York, the official opening coming up on December 20th. Our thanks to Eric and thanks to former Defense Secretary and Senator Bill Cohen joining us as well. And thanks to you for checking in on downtown the podcast brought to you by cross insurance we'll see you next time right here on downtown